Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. And before you continue listening, I want you to stop and think, have you sent your mom a Mother's Day gift yet? And if you have, keep listening. If not, go send your mom some flowers. Guy, have you done anything for your mom yet? Not yet, but I am going to lunch with my mom tomorrow. But happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And as Conrad said, be grateful for your mom. Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, not possible without our moms. Conrad, does your mom listen to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing? She does on occasion. How about how about yours? I don't think she understands the technology. She says she doesn't understand the technology, but I do feel like well, she, she likes probably to just my listens voice. to yeah. She likes to hear your voice because you don't call her enough. <laughs> Give your mom. You will know whether or not my mom listened to this episode based on whether or not we get actually asking my mom to write a review. It's not going to happen. That would be amazing. I don't think she should be writing reviews anyway. We'll see what happens. Keep the internet. I, I'll tell you a quick mom story. My poor mom. She, one time she was, she called me up for tech support as moms do. And I'm like, I don't remember what the issue was. I'm like, you got to double click. And I can hear in the background, she goes, click, click. I'm like, mom, that's two single clicks, not a double click. Love you, mom. What are we talking about today, Conrad? Okay. It sounds like when we were getting ready for this program, there's not much going on. In the news, we are going to have a very quick news segment. We're also going to cover one of the earliest topics. This is almost a retro topic, blogging, not dead. And finally, I'm going to interview Guy on five things not to do with everyone's new favorite toy, ChatGPT. Lockwood, hit it. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, teaching you how to promote, market, and make fat stacks for your legal practice, here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. If this is your first time listening, we're happy to have you. If it's your 81st time listening, great to have you back. Before we get into some of the meat, we're going to cover the news. That's not our news sound. There's nothing going on that we determined to be newsworthy. However, I do want to call out, and I saw this on LinkedIn, long-term fan of the pod. I would like to think of him as a fan of the pod. Dan Harris of Harris Bricken will be testifying before Congress about China's changes to their law and specifically making it really difficult for any business doing business in China. We're going to return back to Dan Harris, talk about why he was selected to testify before Congress in our segment on blogging. But first, we're going to pay some bills. Smart firms use CallRail to track where every lead comes from. PPC, LSA, organic search, or even offline ads. CallRail tells you which channels drive your best leads. CallRail even integrates with your favorite CRM or practice management tools to help manage your leads and see the ROI on your marketing investments. Know exactly which marketing tools work. Plans start at 45 bucks a month. We recommend CallRail to every single one of our clients. Go to callrail.com slash lunch hour now and try it for free. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, 
These immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Frankie, you know Dan Harris. I've known Dan Harris for years and years and years. Dan originally created China Law Blog, which is one of the earliest blogs in the legal market space. And he has been writing very well about doing business in China for well over a decade now. And this is one of those examples going back, I mean, going back 10 years where like blogging was the thing and it was the best way to demonstrate expertise, drive links and build content. It was a great SEO tactic. Some people have kind of talked about, hey, you know, blogging is not really a thing anymore. It's kind of dead. I think Dan is an example here, Guy, of where blogging is not dead, right? And his success here, you know, getting to testify before Congress, again, furthering the subject matter expert perspective of Dan. But, you know, there's lots of different mediums now that people are working with. There are lots of different ways that consumers are accessing information. Why, Guy, in your opinion, is blogging not dead? Well, you know, I think it goes back, like, what is a blog, right? There we go. It's funny. He goes philosophical in four minutes. Well, you know, let's just, we'll, we'll define it like this. It's pages that you create that are distributed in reverse chronological order. But the reason blogging, I think a lot of people maybe are down on blogging is it's really hard. And, yeah. and I think it's also important to distinguish what Dan Harris is doing or like what Tom Goldstein did and still does, I think, and he was retired, but I think he still contributes to SCOTUS blog. Uh, what Bill Marler does for his food safety blogs is not what a lot of lawyers who probably listen to this show think when they hear blogging, right? How many blogs are we going to publish this week? Like it's like lumber or something. What those folks are doing, as you mentioned, in terms of like demonstrating expertise, you know, that's still an exceptionally valuable way to gain an audience, to be an expert, to niche down, demonstrate your authority. You know, the marketers, they're the ones, if anybody's killed blogging, it's the marketers, right? Because we're selling blogs, we're selling blog posts, we're selling content, and it's trash. Uh, you look at it and you're just like, why would anybody read this? And of course, the answer is, well, we're hoping that Google comes and crawls it and puts it in a search result so that someone might click on it. But again, is that even going to convert into when you get that really terrible, the the nine millionth post on 10 things you have to do after a car accident? Is that actually going to position someone to actually call and hire you? And, and if it has, if you can show me in your analytics and attribution data and your CRM data that you got a visit from someone who searched for what to do after a car accident, they landed on your quote unquote blog page and converted into a client, call me up, I'll buy you a coffee and we can talk about it. So Kevin O'Keefe, I would call the God, we, we did the godmother of the solo last session with Carolyn Elephant. Kevin O'Keefe is the godfather of legal blogging, runs a business called LexBlog and has really been pushing, and successfully so, lawyers to get on 
the blogging wagon. He and he did this. He did this before. I want to say this goes back to two thousand four. Yeah, and he and his his pitch has always been the stuff that Dan Harris is doing. It's be you know really invest in take the time. You know the other thing too that I always think about with the blogging thing, and it's really true for any media online. If you're gonna write, like writing's hard, it and you know hard. it's we're not talking about writing briefs and stuff here. We're talking about writing stuff that people actually want to subscribe to and read and share, and journalists want to link to and cite as you an authority and invite you to testify before Congress. You know, for a lot of people, that's really hard. It takes a long, long time. So, Gee, do you still blog? You still blog? Well, it's, that's why I see. I, I knew this question was coming. And that's why I posited it as a blog. If you're asking me, do I write stuff that is <laughs> published in reverse chronological order in several places? Yes, I do. Like my, I have the site, geesakalakis.com. It's been a while since I, that's probably more quote unquote, the formal like, geese blog. And I haven't done that in a while, but like, do I publish on sites that people might think about as a blog? I do for a lot of the reasons we just talked about, because I want to share my expertise. Um, you know, I write for some of the ABA's blogs. I mean, I write the Attorney Sync blog, which is really just, you know, more, I don't know, I mean, is it a blog? I guess it's a blog. Is Mockingbirds, do you consider what you write at Mockingbird blogging? Yeah. You know, but I, I think I think the key here is, and what you're talking about is, and, and, and by the way, Guy and I have poo-pooed the blogging quite a lot. And we, we kind of poo-poo the content, the, just the constant, churning out of garbage content. That is something that if you're a regular listener for LHLM, this is not a surprise. I want to flip this and talk about like, when do you actually say like this piece of content deserves a blog? A blog is the right medium for this. And I think that's really key. And it's it's what you're talking about, Keith. When can you go in depth on something? When are you going? It's not going to be a 90 second quippy clip that you can do on video. When do you choose to actually take the time? And it is a long time. Like a good blog post takes a good time to develop. The last post that I wrote was dealing with the N-Gage chat scandal, right? And, and it, the, the, the top level don't read, haha, ironically, is N-Gage is trying to determine whether or not leads, that the chat function is trying to determine whether or not leads are good for that client. And if they're not, they funnel them out through their own lead sourcing, lead selling products through internet brands, which they launched this without really notifying their customers. They opted all their customers in. I think that's disgusting, but it takes a blog to explain that. And it takes a blog to get into the details of that and share some of the emails that went back and forth. It's not something I can do in a, in a little quick video post. Additionally, one of the things that blogs is, are really great at is driving links. And, and when you write interesting pieces like that, newsworthy pieces like that, you can pull up some links. And I think there is massive value in that from an SEO perspective. But coming back to Harris, you know, Dan wrote the China Law blog for a very, very long time. He then started the Canna Law blog, which was on a separate domain. He had his own Harris Bricken website. And so he had these three different platforms. This is one of the things that I think should be done differently in many cases. And that is the consolidation of all of those blog posts and all the links going to those blog posts onto a single domain. Guy, can you explain why we would promote blog consolidation instead of having lots and lots of different domains for different blogs? Boom. Boom. I just shared my screen. Wow. For those of you listening, we're looking at the why, but let's talk through it. We're looking at a why. 
Sure. You know, this has been a discussion for a long time. And I know there's, you know, in fact, we just, you know, we we're just talking to Darren Shaw about this when we we're talking about local search ranking factors about mm. microsite strategy might be back because of the impact it might have on local pack ranking. This is kind of the inverse of that. So lawyers that have gone out and, and have all these sites that are on different topics, maybe, or maybe they're loosely related, but they're on different domains. You know, the question is, is are they better off from an SEO standpoint on a single domain? And I think most SEOs would probably would say yes, right? You know, I think there's some branding questions, but in terms of consolidating link equity, right? So Metalinks, we talk about links all the time, links matter. Consolidating to a domain, Google's looking at this single site with all of this authority versus your authority being split between all these different domains. And so what we're looking at is a tool called Ahrefs. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's just showing harrisbricken.com backlink profile over time. And it's really obvious where this consolidation happened. And Conrad, this consolidation happened a couple times, a couple consolidations. Yeah, you can see it twice on the graph here. And, we'll, and if you want to, we'll make sure that you can see the video on YouTube. But you can see there's this massive jump in referring domains. And the reason for that is, the interesting thing with this, this site is, we've talked about this a lot, Guy. It's really hard to get links to a law firm website. Blogs are a great way. Blog content and the way blogs are written. And this has gotten harder as marketing people have polluted blogs with their drivel. But blogs are a great way to write content that is link worthy. And so what you'll see is that the Harris Bricken site itself, which is a law firm site, struggles. A blog, especially a really old one like China Law Blog, has all of this legacy power, right? And so, yeah. you know, uh, we've been critical of content. We've talked a lot about content. I believe we covered the useless content ratio. We've talked about Google penalizing bad content. Great blog content, still effective, right? I do think you have to make sure that it is the right medium for the message and the audience that you're trying to reach. But great blog content is still very much a thing. You had a conversation recently with with Ben Glass about this. Can you give it, give us a quick overview? Yeah, well, you know, Ben has the same kind of question. Like, what do I think? Is blogging still a thing? And to me, it, it keeps, and you just mentioned it, it comes back to the audience and that kind of thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everybody wants to measure everything, right? Like, how are we going to measure this? So... Instead of trying to measure like just raw traffic or something like that, you know, that's what our rankings, like what the SEO agencies position it as, you know, can you actually write something on a regular basis that people would actually subscribe to, to get? And then can you do that in the written word? I mean, I because we were kind of joking in the show prep, you know, maybe you should just be doing short videos, right? It's, I mean, it's hard enough to keep people's attention with a short video. It's hard enough to keep people's attention for a legal marketing podcast, right? It's just audio. Right. And so reading, who wants to read? And is anybody reading? And, and the answer is yes, yeah, some people are. And hopefully uh, you know your audience. And if your audience is consuming the written word that way, you're the expert and they want to get information from you that way. I think that's great. But to your point, you know, it's always the message, not the medium. It's always the way it is. And so like, how do, because you asked me earlier, how do I decide whether something's like a blog post or not? And it's funny, that's even changed for me over time because I yeah, used to be much very so. much like when I was in the habit of like just regularly daily or semi-daily posting, 
it was kind of just more of like a journal. Like what was on my mind? What was I thinking about in terms of internet marketing that day or SEO that day? And that's really right. changed. I think that is more now, uh, I disseminate that information more through a short video. You know, I obviously bring it to lunch hour legal marketing. I have an email newsletter. And, and that's their thing too, I think for written word, like subscribers, like keeping people interested in an email. Like emails really like still is, <laughs> I'm going to say this and people are going to laugh, but it's really still the most sacred channel because it's very easy for someone just to click, I'm out, I'm opting out of this, never see you again. But if you can keep their attention, you know, you've got an engaged audience every time they open their inbox, which again, for most people is regularly throughout the day. And the key to having people who want to read your stuff, and this is just brutal and legal, lots of people don't want to read about car accidents, right? And right. so in many cases, the content needs to be adjacent to what you do. And I, I want to give you the counterpoint on the, this was, a, this was always the pushback on like moving the blog content to the main site. You know, so many lawyers have these websites that are like, you know, car accidents and explosions, and I'm the best lawyer that's ever walked the earth and $10 million verdicts. And then you're going to have a blog post in the same design framework as that. No one's ever going to come to that. No one wants to read a blog post on a billboard, right? And so anyway, and, and, and the point being that you can obviously change design elements for your posts and your blog and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't have to be the same. But I think that really does, for me, drives the point home is that nobody wants to, except maybe other, you know, I th I'm always talking about plaintiff's lawyers. Maybe other plaintiff's lawyers who want to learn from you are coming to your site with all the ad stuff because they know, like, that's just the way it is and that's what you do. But the average person, like if you're writing a post or something about safety advocacy or something you're doing in the community or something that people actually might yes. want to consume, you know, putting that on a site that's like, uh, feels like a lawyer ad, like, of course, that's going to be off-putting to a lot of folks. So I don't know. All right. Enough about blogging. When we come back, we are going to get into five things. I'm going to grill Gee five things not to do with ChatGPT. And we're back. And I am very proud of this comment that was left on YouTube by John Fisher. Anybody that knows John knows that his reputation for professionalism and uh, just really like one of those go-givers who's always delivering value everywhere he writes and publishes and talks. And so um, when John left this comment, I was really happy. Thank you, John. Fantastic podcast. I can't get enough. Appreciate your generosity. See how he worked that in there? See, John's a generous guy and reminded me of how generous he is by saying how generous we are with our time. So thank you, John, for taking the time to listen as well as leave that nice comment. And if you have comments, please do drop the comments on our YouTube videos or in Apple. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. And also thank you to that listener who will go unnamed who hit both Guy and myself when the pod didn't drop in the morning on the last Wednesday. You made both of our days, uh, the fact that you know when the pod drops and you were worried that it hadn't dropped yet because we were recording late, that was cool. It was fun. That was cool. Guy, from what I read on the web, I can use ChatGPT to get my kids into college. I could have it write a really thoughtful note to my mom for Mother's Day. I think it can uh, do my laundry. It can teach me how to drive a car. It can make me a better person. We may have overstepped here. I want to ask you five ways not to use ChatGPT 
for marketing. So the Gee Skeptic is back. Everyone is very enamored with this shiny new object, but you're pushing back. It's the clubhouse with potential. But what's the pushback? You've got five things. What is your first of five ways not to use ChatGPT for marketing? So I did a uh, I did this uh, presentation for the Will County, Illinois bar. And this is all fresh on my mind because I think it was like not even that long ago that I did this. But the first one is that you see these horror stories of, number one, don't enter confidential information into ChatGPT, right? Samsung had this big debacle because... I think they published some of their like, I don't know if it was their code or data or something, but there's been a couple instances of this and there was a glitch that OpenAI admitted where it was showing other people's prompts. And so you could go and get that stuff. And the same thing is probably true. I haven't seen a horror story in legal yet. If you've got one, love to hear it. But just like anywhere else, if it's on the internet, it's public and permanent. Don't go sharing you know, client confidences. Unless you're that TikTok lawyer who's like, hey, just got my client off of DUI. Uh, anyway, don't share confidential stuff inside ChatGPT. Okay, and so, so I mean, that would happen when you are using ChatGPT to respond to a prospect, right? I mean, it could happen in a lot of contexts. In fact, that's when it's going to be one of our coming up ones. So in the research that I was doing for this Will County thing, I, there's a lot of legal marketers selling all sorts of cool ways to use ChatGPT for legal marketing which are completely unethical and are going to create all sorts of problems for folks. So that, right. you know, that's that you want to know a niche. You can be the grievance lawyer to represent other lawyers when they're dealing with chat GPT grievances and ethics issues. There you Tune go. Tune in next week as Gee burns bridges with half of the legal marketing community. All right. All right. Number two, one of the concerns with chat GPT is accuracy. Why can't we rely on it for accuracy, Guy? ChatGPT hallucinates. You know, Mark Palmer had a great example where he was doing some legal research and ChatGPT is making up cases, like not even real cases. Not They don't exist. So it hallucinates, you know, it's learning set corpus only goes up to 2021 anyway. So anything more recent is not going to be good. But if you're going to use it for anything, and there are some things, we talked about some ways to use it. Maybe we can talk about some more in the future, but it's got to be reviewed and edited by a human. And if it's anything legal-ish in it, that needs to be, I mean, my view is if you're going to publish it under your name, you got to review it. I don't know how lawyers would publish stuff, automate stuff that they haven't had a chance to review. So review anything coming out of ChatGPT and edit it before you publish it. Okay. We were talking about SEO and blogs earlier. Talk to me about ChatGPT and responses for SEO. Yeah. So the no-no here is don't just wholesale paste ChatGPT responses for quote-unquote SEO. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm still very proud of this. If you search right now, you're listening and you search ChatGPT for legal marketing, I believe one of my posts still comes up, which was completely written by ChatGPT. And I disclaim that in the post. So I only say that, and that's the counterpoint. But Google is actively trying to distinguish completely copy and pasted chat GPT, generative AI created content from human or you know, useful content, as they call it. And, and there are plenty of SEOs who have done the big tests where 
they just connect their chat GPT API to their WordPress API and crank out 10,000 posts and traffic takes off and then the site gets de-indexed. So if you think, if your legal marketing person's like, hey, we've got this cool new service where we're going to chat GPT our way to the top of Google SERPs, you better run the other way because it's going to work until it doesn't. Well, so interestingly, we were speaking about Kevin O'Keefe earlier. He launched, I believe he called it Lou, which is his chat GPT assisted content engine. Great. I don't frankly know much about it, but I think what what when he talks about it being chat GPT assisted or AI assisted, this is ensuring that you put the human element in in order to deal with things like accuracy and making sure that the content that you're generating is actually valuable. Yeah. Tom Martin from Lawdroid does a fantastic, uh, he's on several fantastic talks. In fact, I, if you're a lawyer and you want to know more about ChatGPT as a tool in the legal context, uh, in a variety of different contexts, go check out Tom Martin, Lawdroid. He's got a, a ton. But his big point of, is this. It's not a replacement for writing. It's not what it is. It's to help us in a variety of contexts. It's, you know, I think he calls it like the word calculator or something, which is great. It's a great analogy because the calculator doesn't like stop us from needing to know about math. Like you can't even, if you don't know the formula, you know, if you're trying to calculate cost per acquisition and you just, you know, you want to like type into the calculator, the calculator can help you do the computation, but you still have to understand the meaning of cost per acquisition. Well, same thing with ChatGPT. There's a lot of uh, ways it can assist us. But you can't just wholesale, you know, replace writing or blogging or legal research or yada, yada, yada with ChatGPT. All right. Next one. I believe there is a horrendous example of someone using ChatGPT to automate responses into Google business profiles. Can you share more on that, Guy? Yeah. So this is real. You can go search for... uh, using ChatGPT to respond to your Google business profile reviews. And I'm sure this example will come up. And the lawyer who wrote about this is like super proud of it. And then you go and read these responses and it's horrible. You know, we talk about how valuable reviews are and how important they are from a, you know, your next client making a decision about contacting and hiring you. And then you've got an automated, someone zapping a chat GPT response to a testimonial. So one, you probably are going to create some ethics issues for yourself because ChatGPT is not thinking about ethics issues. And even even if, you know, then you get into the philosophical thing. Well, it's like ChatGPT doesn't know the client confidence. It's like, it doesn't matter. The perception is going to be that you revealed a confidence, right? If there's anything identifiable, yada, yada, yada. So we can, I don't want to get into that philosophical debate. But two, it looks like crap. It looks like someone automated a response. And now, so what did you say? You said, you know what? I didn't care enough to actually come here and respond. I'm so annoyed that clients are leaving me positive reviews that in order to respond to them, I'm just going to zap this automated chat GPT response that is clearly artificial. I mean, it's like lists off all the counties that they practice and servicing all the area. I mean, it's so bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do it. Number five on your list of things to not use chat GPT for. Which goes, you know, it's a, it kind of goes with the prior one, but don't use chat GPT to automate the human part, right? So George Saharis actually we had on LHLM a ways back now. And I thought he put it really well. Is like use chatbots, generative AI technology automations 
to automate the things that you can seamlessly automate. But show up and be a person on the things that can't be. And so, in my opinion, things like responding to a review, when a client wants to talk to an attorney, whether it's through a chatbot or otherwise, your content on your website, that's human stuff. That's empathy, emotion, service. You know, I think of the uh, Robert Reich categories of work. Why would you put more of your service, the thing that you can actually deliver a lot of value that clients are actually going to pay you for? Why would you try to automate that stuff? Because guess what? The more that you can figure out how to automate in that context, the more that your job is irrelevant. They're either going to go work with a competitor because you know they're looking at your review responses and they're like, gosh, that... This is just like completely automated, you know, and if you're doing that to clients, they're going to leave, you know, no one wants to be just feel like they're part of some like, you know, Kafka-esque machine of automations. All right. Don't automate the human part. Speaking of not automating the human part, don't send your mom a chat GPT Mother's Day letter. And with that, dear listener, we must bid you adieu. Thanks to all the moms, our moms, if you're a mom, moms everywhere, we love you. If you are just dropping by and you have something nice to say about Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, please do drop a comment or a review, or you can Facebook message us that we are being untimely with our publishing. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. Until next time, Conrad and Gee with Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. Thank you for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. If you'd like more information about what you heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Follow Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.